You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The Gospel of John, chapter 2. We're going to begin reading together this morning, beginning at verse 13. And we'll read to the end of verse 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Let's bow together in prayer as we begin. Our Father, we come now before your word, and our desire is that the time that we spend in study and in listening to it might edify us and equip us for life and for service. We do not want to hear the words of a mere man, but we pray that the Spirit of God would be our teacher and that your word would be our rule and our guide Open our eyes and our hearts today, we ask, that we might willingly and graciously submit ourselves to the truths that we find. In Jesus' name, amen. It's easy in our modern-day kind of culture to go with the flow and sort of create in our own minds a Jesus that makes us comfortable. Many people do that. The New Testament doesn't present to us a Jesus that instinctively makes us comfortable, especially with ourselves. There are things about Jesus which sort of cut across the grain of the very postmodern and and tolerant and pluralistic culture in which we live. And one such text is the one that's before us here. People are usually comfortable with the Jesus who is meek and mild. The Jesus who always has little children on his knee and always is speaking soft things to everybody and never is confrontative or never is bombastic, never says anything to offend anybody. The Jesus of modern men's making really makes them comfortable with their sin because Jesus would never, ever make a moral judgment. You go out and you talk to somebody, and if you ask them, what did Jesus say, they are usually quick. Jesus said, judge not, lest you be not judged. And that's apparently the only thing that they are aware that Jesus ever said. They have no idea in which context He said it. They have no idea what He meant by it. They have no idea what the point of the passage is, but they are certain of one thing, that Jesus would never judge their sin. To them, Jesus never drew any lines in the sand, never said anything dogmatic, never made any moral judgments, never condemned anybody for their sin. Jesus just came to make everybody feel warm and fuzzy and comfortable and welcome and invited and comfortable with where they're at and comfortable with who they are. And if Jesus could say one thing to you, this sort of tolerant, pluralistic Jesus would say to you, God's not mad at you, He's mad about you. And if God had a big refrigerator, He'd have a picture of you right on the front of it. The only problem is that that Jesus never existed, and He doesn't exist today. 
The Jesus of the Bible said and did a lot of things that sort of make us uncomfortable. He did make moral judgments. He is the judge and will be the judge of all the earth. The Jesus of the New Testament will one day say the word and all men will stand before him and he will render judgment upon them for their deeds. That's the Jesus of the New Testament. The Jesus of the New Testament confronted pride and hypocrisy and gossip and slander. The Jesus of the New Testament confronted those who were flagrant and unrepentant and hardened in their sin. He gave grace to the humble, yes, but he also opposed the proud. Some of the most scathing words that have ever been put on paper, you find the New Testament addressed from Jesus to the religious leaders of his day who were prideful and arrogant and unhumble and and absolutely lifted up in their own self-righteousness and their own pompous sense of self-importance. Jesus did give moral judgments, and he did make moral judgments, and he did things that make us uncomfortable, that cut right across the grain of our pluralistic, modern, tolerant, make-no-moral-judgments society. And one such instance is in John chapter 2, which we just read, where Jesus cleansed the temple, where he came into Jerusalem before the Passover, and he cleaned out all of the money changers, and he cleaned out all of the people who were selling animals for the sacrifices, and all of those who were making profit off of the worship of business. That Jesus and what he did sort of cuts across the grain because we realize that some of the most, some of the most ambitious physical activity that we read of Jesus in the New Testament comes right here in John chapter 2 where he does all of these things. He goes up for the feast, he makes a scourge, he sees what's in the temple, and he drives these men out, turns over their tables, and commands them to get out of the temple. And this falls on the heels of the miracle that we looked at last week of the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And John chapter 2 has basically two main events. The first is that first of Jesus' signs, turning water into wine in Cana of Galilee. And I said a couple weeks ago, by the way, that there were seven signs recorded in the Gospel of John. There's actually eight. Somebody came up to me afterwards who has a MacArthur Study Bible, and there in the big box at the bottom of the page was the thing that said eight signs in the Gospel of John, and it listed all of them. I had read somewhere that there was eight signs in John's Gospel. And then as I went through, just to double-check myself, because I could find no list of them, anything that I studied, I could find no list. So I went through and I just was kind of glancing through the Gospel of John, making note, and I came up with seven. And I missed Jesus walking on water. So there's actually eight. So let that be a lesson to you of two things. Number one, always check everything I say by Scripture, even the smallest details like that. And number two, get yourself a MacArthur Study Bible so you can... So you can do that. So John, the wedding in Cana of Galilee was the first of eight signs that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. And right on the heels of that is this instance of him cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. And today what, we, what I want to do is sort of introduce this next big section. And then we're going to look at the scene. And I'm going to explain to you what Jesus saw and what was going on there. Who were these people? What were they doing? How did all of this get started? What was going on in the temple that caused him such um, vexation of spirit that he was willing to do this. So that's what we're going to do today. So we're ju- really just going to sort of introduce it. You notice already that we're moving faster through John chapter 2 than we did through John chapter 1. So even though we're kind of taking a break here and slowing down just a bit, we'll pick up the pace as we go through the rest of John chapter 2. This instant, this instance, the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem, Alfred Edersheim, in his book, Jesus, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, He calls the cleansing of the temple the sign which is not a sign. The sign which is not a sign. That was kind of curious to me, and it got me thinking, and I wanted to find out what, why did he mean, why did he call this the sign which is not a sign? What does he mean by that? 
And here's what Edersheim means. This event where Jesus cleanses the temple is not a sign in the sense that it's miraculous, like the water turning into wine, but it is a sign in the sense that it does signify and identify something about Jesus that is incredibly significant and profound. It is a sign in the sense that it's not just an ordinary event like he went here and he traveled there and he had dinner and he talked with this person and he taught them this. It's an extraordinary event in the sense that it is a sign and it points to something very significant about Jesus. Namely, it's a messianic sign. It's a prophetic sign. And it does indicate who Jesus was. It tells us about his deity, really. His authority to do what he did in the house of God and to call his father's house his father's house. That's a claim to deity. So it is a sign in the sense that it signifies something of Jesus, but it's not a sign in the sense that it's miraculous like turning water into wine. Though, I do have to say, I am not convinced that there is nothing supernatural going on here. We'll get into this next week. I think there is something miraculous of sorts that is happening in the cleansing of the temple, but not in the same way as the water into wine. So we'll deal with that a little later on. There's something that sort of comes up as we as we approach the whole issue of the cleansing of the temple, and I do want to address it because your Bible study Bible probably made, makes a note of it, and you're going to notice something right away as you read through the other Gospels. You'll notice that the cleansing of the temple or a cleansing of the temple is mentioned in all four Gospels. It's mentioned in Matthew chapter 21, mentioned in Mark chapter 11, Luke 19, and here in John chapter 2. Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. Those are what we call the synoptic Gospels, the, the three similar Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John chapter 2. Something that stands out, maybe you've noticed it already. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple takes place at the end of Jesus' life and ministry. During the final week of his life, while he was in Jerusalem, in the last week of his life, right before his crucifixion. In the Gospel of John, the cleansing of the temple is recorded at the beginning of Jesus' life. Right here, after his first sign, at his first Passover in Jerusalem that he celebrated as part of his public ministry. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of the last events that Jesus did. In John, one of the first events that Jesus did. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the final week of Jesus' life. In the Gospel of John, the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And what do we do with that? Is John wrong? What's going on? How, how do we have this recorded at the beginning of Jesus' life in John and at the end in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? There are really only three ways of answering that and understanding what's going on. The first one is that John just got it wrong. He was mistaken. And if you have to go with the majority opinion, I guess you would go with the, the perspective taken by Matthew, Mark, and Luke that it happened later in the life of Jesus in the final week and that John was simply mistaken about what time this happened and when this happened. He wasn't there, so he kind of gave a good shot at it, but he was wrong. I reject that theory completely out of hand because I don't believe that any of the Bible writers made any mistakes writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I think that their writing should be taken at face value, and we should say, how can we understand this in a way that assumes that John actually knew what he was talking about? So I reject that that possibility. That leaves basically two, and either one of these would be within the realm of orthodoxy, though I think one of, this, one of these is very weak, one of them is very strong. Let me give you the weak one first. Some would suggest, and we'll just call this for the sake of simplicity, the one temple cleansing view, the one temple cleansing view. Some would say there was only one temple cleansing. And it happened just as Matthew, Mark, and Luke record at the very end of Jesus' life, during that final week, one of the last public things that he did before he was crucified. So why then does John record it at the beginning? Was John mistaken? Well, no. According to this view, they would say, 
Though there was only one temple cleansing, John records it at the beginning, not because he's trying to give us a chronological treatment of the material in his gospel, but because he's trying to give us a logical treatment of the material in his gospel. So John knew that it was recorded, knew that it happened late, but he records it here at the beginning because it sort of fits in with the miracle. So John is not as interested in giving us a chronological treatment of all of this, but rather sort of a logical, he sort of groups it in here. So here's how that thinking would go. The wedding in the Cana in Galilee and the wa- turning the water into wine was really a symbolic miracle that Jesus did. And here's what was symbolized. Now, I'm giving you the weak view. Remember this, not what I believe. Here's what is symbolized. What is symbolized is with the water and the water pots, you have that symbolic of Old Testament Judaism and all of its impurity and all of its corruption and all of the dirt that was part of that at the time. Jesus turning the water into wine symbolized what he came to do in bringing in the New Testament era, the new covenant in bringing in the gospel and replacing the law with the gospel. So in the Old Testament, you had the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, which and Old Judaism, which was the water and the water pots. Jesus came to turn that into grace, not law, but grace, under the New Covenant with the church and this and the wine. So the wine is symbolic of all of that. Do you catch all of that? So then they say, in order to demonstrate how Jesus did that, and another episode that happened in the life of Jesus where he did a similar thing, John sort of grabs that event at the end of the life of Jesus and puts it in here to show us this was something that Jesus did throughout his ministry. There's a thematic connection, they would say, to between the miracle and the tent cleansing of the temple, and John sort of records them together and helps us to see the symbolism of it. So the cleansing of the temple, he went into the heart of Old Testament Judaism, drove out the impurity, and that is sort of similar to what he did in turning water into wine. Everybody got that? Okay. That, I think, is weak for two reasons. Number one, because as we've gone through the Gospel of John, we've noticed all of these indicators of time, right? Beginning in chapter 1, we have that seven days which culminated at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. It does seem that John is trying to give us a chronological treatment of the material. He says in verse 12, they went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his disciples. They stayed there a few days. Then he gives us the timing of the Passover, beginning in verse 13. So John is giving us a chronological structure of what's going on in his gospel. He's not dealing with it logically, but chronologically. So I think it's weak on that account. I also think it's weak because it relies far too heavily on symbolism and allegory and, and trying to draw all these connections between the water pots and the water, which I didn't do in the cleanse, in the miracle, because I don't think it's legitimate to do that. Anytime you begin to build a theology on this is a symbolic of that and that symbolic of that, you're on dangerous ground. So that leaves us with really one good explanation as to why John records this at the beginning. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke record it at the end. And here it is. This is what I would call, and it's my view, the two-cleansing view. I think there were two temple cleansings in the life of Jesus. One that happened at the beginning of his public ministry and one that happened at the end of his public ministry. Jesus began his ministry, his first Passover, by coming into the temple and cleansing it. He did the same thing at the very end of his ministry. That is why the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, recorded at the end. John records it at the beginning. Why? Because there were two of them. And John, knowing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke included at the end, included this event along with everything else in chapters 1 through 5, which you don't find in the other Gospels. All of that is material that you don't find in the synoptics. This event, I think, is one of those as well. There are striking differences between the two temple cleansings. You can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you can sort of harmonize all three of those perspectives of that event. And then you read the Gospel of John, and you're going to notice some marked differences. In John's Gospel, Jesus gives them the challenge, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
In John's Gospel, Jesus quotes no other authority but Himself for doing what He did. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, He quotes the Old Testament as His authority for doing what He did. In John's Gospel, there seems to be no immediate ramifications for cleansing the temple. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it was one of those things that sort of pushed the religious leaders over the edge and caused Jesus to be crucified. So the reaction of the Jews is different. It just it describes and looks like two entirely different accounts. So there were two temple cleansings. And John is right. One of them happened. This one happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are right. That one happened at the end of Jesus' ministry. They say if he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry, then why would he need to do it again three years later? Are you kidding? You think that they would have stayed out of the temple when they're making that kind of money? They would have been right back there the very very next year. And this is just by way of sort of an interesting observation. When Jesus came the first time, two of his uh, among his first public acts were two main things, attending a wedding and cleansing the temple. And it is interesting, and I just think it's a similar parallel to just note, when Jesus comes again, among his two main public acts will be the purging of his bride, the church, by taking out all the goats and all the tares and purifying the spiritual temple of God and attending the wedding supper of the Lamb. Interesting parallel between the two comings. So, now we dive into our text, beginning in verse 12. Verse 12 is kind of just a little interlude of sorts that happens between the miracle and the temple. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. There's really not much that's intended there to note other than just a note of Jesus' travels and who was with him. And so I don't want to make too much out of this verse. But there is a couple things there that I think are worthy of our attention. It says that he went down to Capernaum from Cana. And actually, Capernaum was up here on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember our little map that we have in this room? If you haven't been here before, then you're totally in the dark. And Cana was over here north of Nazareth, so it was actually going across the land of Israel to get from Cana over here to uh, Capernaum. But Capernaum was on the Sea of Galilee, which was 680 feet below sea level. So they did go down in the sense that they lost a lot of elevation going down to the Sea of Galilee. Later on, it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level, so they went from 680 feet below sea level to 2,500 feet above sea level. Even though they went down, they actually went up. So that makes sense of all the ups and downs in the text. It went down to Capernaum. Capernaum kind of seems in the New Testament to be a very significant city in the life of Jesus. It seems as if he spent a lot of his early years of his public ministry in Capernaum, and then it sort of functioned as a home base, sort of a launching point for different travels, and he would come back there. According to Matthew chapter 11, Jesus did a lot of miracles in the city of Capernaum, and he condemned Capernaum because of its unbelief, even though Jesus had performed a lot of signs and wonders in the city of Capernaum. Why is it that his mother and his brothers and his disciples go up with him from Cana to Capernaum? Wouldn't his mother and his brothers have gone back to Nazareth? Some have suggested that Jesus' mom, after Joseph died, and I guess that's the assumption that Joseph was dead at this point, that after Joseph died that they would have moved from Nazareth to Capernaum and that that is where Jesus and Mary and the rest of his brothers and sisters lived. So they've moved from Nazareth to Capernaum by this point. That's possible. I don't know if it's all that believable. But that's where Jesus apparently was living when he began his public ministry in the city of Capernaum. I want you to notice, and I think this is significant, especially if you have a Roman Catholic background, do you notice that Jesus had brothers in the text? It's obvious, isn't it? His brothers went up with him. Roman Catholicism, and I don't mean any ill toward anybody who has a Roman Catholic background, Roman Catholicism, in an attempt to preserve what they call the 
doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, says that those brothers were not really brothers, they were cousins. Because they have a doctrine or a tradition that says Mary and Joseph, even after they had Jesus, didn't, involve, didn't engage in any kind of normal marital intimacy whatsoever, that Mary was perpetually a virgin for the rest of her life. And so they say, well, they have two ways of explaining the references in the New Testament. This is one of them. There are others to Jesus's brothers. First, they will say that the brothers really should be better translated cousins because that's what John meant. So these weren't really Jesus's brothers. Jesus was an only child. These are his cousins. And the word Adelphos here should be translated as cousins instead of brothers. Really, that doesn't fly at all because there was a New Testament Greek word for cousins. You see it in Colossians chapter four, verse 10. That's not the word that Jesus used, or that's used here of Jesus' brothers. It's the word adophos, which means brothers. So, Roman Catholicism then gives a second option. These children are Joseph's children from a previous marriage before he was married to Mary. Now, you didn't know Joseph was married previous to his engagement, betrothal to Mary, did you? Now, you didn't know that because that's not true. There's no place in the New Testament where it says that Joseph was married prior to his engagement to Mary. There's no record that these children are children other than Mary and Joseph's children through normal marital relationships. Matthew chapter 1 verse 25 says that after Jesus was born, that is when Mary and Joseph came together. That's the idea behind Matthew 1 25. You can see it yourself. And that would have resulted in Jesus having brothers. Now on to verse 13. It says that Jesus went up to the Passover, where the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It was incumbent or expected that every male that was 12 years old or older would make the annual trek to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was the Jewish celebration that commended, uh, uh, commemorated the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt under the mighty hand of God through Moses and all that attended that. And the Passover instituted, you read about it in Exodus 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, and, th- and those chapters there. The Passover was the children of Israel's annual remembrance of what God did in the Exodus. And that the angel, the dark, the death angel, went through the land of Egypt and he would stop at every household and if there was not blood painted on the lintel, uh, what's the word? Doorposts. And it is lintels, I guess. I was thinking the little beans that you make soup out of, but that's, those are lentils. The lintels in the doorpost, if the blood of the lamb was not on the lintels of the door in the doorpost, then the death angel would come in and every firstborn in that household would die. And they died all the way through the land of Egypt. But if the children of Israel sacrificed the lamb, celebrated the Passover meal, and painted the doorpost with blood, the death angel would pass over the children of Israel. And thus God said, I make a distinction between Egypt and Israel, so that you might know that you are my children and you are my people. And this Passover, this was the annual feast, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover meal. Now a Jew, when they celebrated the Passover, they would have a Passover lamb that they would present in the temple. So as everybody came into Jerusalem, they came to present their offerings in the temple. And the offering, or the Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of the month of Nisan every year. And on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, the, the animals would be sacrificed in the tabernacle and later on in Jesus' time in the temple. And between three o'clock in the afternoon and six o'clock in the evening, while the, and then the family would sit down and they would enjoy the Passover meal together. And the meal consisted of a couple different cups of wine that were drank as part of that celebration. And then they also had uh, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, and the Passover lamb that they would eat. And the bitter herbs served to remind them of the bitterness of the slavery in Egypt. The unleavened bread served to remind them of the haste with which they left the land of uh, Egypt and the inability to cook bread that had a chance to rise. And then the Passover lamb, of course, was the lamb that they sacrificed to get the blood for the doorposts of the 
of their house so that the death angel would pass over their household. And they would, at the beginning of every meal, one of the elder children in the household would ask their father, Father, what makes this day to be different from every other day? And the father then would recite or narrate or read to them the account of the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt. And they would sing Psalms 113 through 118 as part of this meal together in celebration of this. Passover was followed. The 14th of Nisan was followed by a seven-day feast known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it followed right on the heels from the 15th to the 21st. So as all of these people were coming to Jerusalem, they were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But Passover in Scripture, as here in John chapter 2, is often used to describe that whole event. Passover proper on the 14th of Nisan and the seven-day feast which immediately followed it. Sometimes Passover is used to refer to both of those events together. It was all Passover. It was a big eight-day-long celebration. That's how John uses it here. So Jesus is coming up to Jerusalem to observe the Passover in fulfillment of the law as was expected of him according to the Old Testament law and the Old Testament expectation. Now, here is what Jesus saw when he got to the temple in Jerusalem. And this is the scene that he encountered. Verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Now, who are these people? What are they doing and why are they there? It's not difficult to imagine in our own minds the um, what it is that Jesus saw and the need for what was going on even inside the temple. When it says that he went into the temple, it means that he went into the whole temple complex. It was a large area. There was an outer court around the actual temple proper, which was inside that surrounded by that outer court. Inside that outer court, Gentiles were allowed to come. But Gentiles could not come past the wall of separation, which separated the outer court, known as the court of the Gentiles, from the inner court where all of the sacrifices were offered and inside the temple. Only a Jew could go in there. Do you remember back in the book of Acts, the reason Paul was arrested in the city of Jerusalem in Acts 21? Do you remember what that was for? It was because the Jews saw Paul in the temple... And earlier they had seen him in the city with Trophimus the Ephesian, and they assumed that since hours earlier he was out in the city with Trophimus, that he must have taken Trophimus inside the temple. And what they meant was inside that inner sanctuary of the temple. Trophimus and Ephesian, a Gentile, could come in the outer court all day long. And that's where all of the selling went on, was outside in that outer court. But no Gentile could go past the wall of separation without losing his life, because there were signs posted all over the outside that said, Gentiles not welcome, stay out, and you're going to lose your life if you'll come past this wall. And the Jews were allowed to kill Gentiles that they caught inside the temple, desecrating the temple. So all of the trading, all of the selling that is being described is happening inside that outer court, not inside the temple proper, inside that whole temple precinct, the big wall around the temple. Do you remember there was a fortress Antonio which actually uh, emptied out onto the temple, the court of the Gentiles. That's where the centurion and Roman soldiers were positioned there to kind of keep order inside the temple itself. That's the area that's being described here. And this event that Jesus encountered, what he sees going on in the temple, this is not the first time that he's seen this. This is not the first time this has happened. This happened every year. According to Alfred Edersheim in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, all of his buying and selling actually started taking place about four weeks prior to Passover. Out in all of the little hamlets and the country towns and the roadside villas and all of that around Jerusalem, people would sort of set up their little booths and they would begin to exchange money as the pilgrims started to trickle into Jerusalem from all over the world. They would come back to Jerusalem and so they would stop in these little towns outside where they would find uh, living quarters and inns and things like that. And that's where the booths would pop up about four weeks prior to Passover. Kind of like we see about two weeks prior to the 4th of July, we see the little booths pop up all over town. 4th of July comes, they all vanish, they're all gone. Same thing happened with the money changers and the animal vendors. 
prior to Passover. About two weeks prior to Passover, all of that commerce out in the out, outer skirts of Jerusalem and little villas and hamlets, countryside towns, roadways, all of that would shut down and it would all move inside the temple, inside that outer court, the court of the Gentiles. So Jesus came into the temple, and here is what he saw. All of the money changers and the animal vendors inside the temple court, vending their wares, selling their animals, and exchanging money. Now, it's easy for us to understand exactly why it is that the business would have cropped up to begin with. When the Jews came back, and they came back from all over the Roman Empire, some of them traveling hundreds of miles across desert and wilderness, or getting on a boat, sailing up to into the seaports along the nation of Israel, and then getting off and traveling to Jerusalem, they were required to do two things. Number one, they were required to bring as animal sacrifice. Number two, they were required to pay the temple tax. Every male, 20 years old and older, had to pay a temple tax of one half of a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. More on that in just a little bit. But they had to bring an animal for the sacrifice. Do you really want to try and feed and water an animal as you spend weeks with it out in the desert on your way along the roads to Jerusalem and bring all of that food and water with you or to stop in every city along the way and get enough food and water for your animal to take it to Jerusalem? That would be a tremendous cost to you. It would be far easier for you if you could just travel to Jerusalem and not have to bring your ox on board the ship and pay the fare of hauling an ox across the Mediterranean Sea over to Jerusalem. That would be far more expensive if you could just show up at Jerusalem and go and buy an animal for the sacrifice and then offer that animal. That would be much easier, much more convenient, would it not, than traveling for weeks, maybe a couple months from all over the empire back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover? So there's a legitimate reason why these guys were selling animals. They were offering a service to the worshipers. Now you say, but if I was only a few miles away, maybe a, a couple days journey from Jerusalem, then it would be much easier that I could bring my own animal. Yeah, you could, but see, here's what was going on inside the temple. They had a man, well, according to the law, you couldn't sacrifice an animal that was not approved. The animal had to be without blemish. <clears throat> so they set up little guys who were inspectors inside the temple. Their job was to inspect all of the animals before they were sacrificed for Passover. Now, do you think that the inspectors would inspect your animal just out of the sheer goodness of their heart? No. They had a little fee that they inspector charged to inspect your animal. So you could show up to the temple, you could bring your animal up there, and the priest would not sacrifice your animal unless it had been inspected and approved. So you bring your animal up to the inspector, and you pay him your fee, and he goes over your animal, and he says to you, this is a wonderful animal, but there's a blemish on it. Now, if you want a pre-approved, pre-inspected animal, you can go see my colleague over here against the wall, and he will hook you up with an animal that's already been inspected and already been approved. But this animal, just not going to cut it. And so then you'd have to go over and you'd have to buy an animal. And the price of purchasing an animal was exorbitant. Hendrickson in his commentary on the Gospel of John says, if a pair of doves was worth a nickel, they were charging $4 for a pair of doves. And you say, what kind of a fool would pay that kind of money for something that wasn't worth it like that? It was cheaper and easier to do that almost no matter what they charged than it was to drag your animal across the northern part of Africa and all the way up the Mediterranean, edge of the Mediterranean into the land of Israel. It was easier to do that. And you, you and I, we look at it and we say, no, nobody would really be foolish enough to spend money like that at that kind of a markup for something like that, would they? Have you ever been to a movie theater? Are you allowed to bring your own refreshments into the movie theater? No, so what do you have to do? 
You have to pay $18 for that little bag of popcorn that you can barely get your hand into and that big cup of five pounds of ice and three ounces of soda in it. And you pay a tremendous markup over that. And they have every right to charge what they want in their facility. And I don't, I defend that to my death. And I also defend my ability and right to complain about it. But you and I pay for things like that all the time because of convenience. We're paying for the convenience. It was the same in Jesus' day. But then they had not only the animal that they had to purchase, but they had men who were exchanging money. Because as you trickled into the land of Israel from all over the Roman Empire, you would be carrying in your pockets all kinds of different currency. There were at least a half a dozen different kinds of currency that floated around the different parts of the empire, the different parts of the then known world. So people would show up and they would have Egyptian currency or they would have Roman currency or they would have uh, uh, Ethiopian currency, but they didn't have one of the two types of currencies that was allowed inside the temple to be given for the temple tax, and that was either a Jewish coin or a Tyrian coin. And most people say, or a lot of people I should say, say that they only allowed those two types of coins because any coin with a pagan image or a pagan god on it was not allowed to be submitted into the temple. It probably had more to do with the the purity of the silver content of the coins than anything else. But if you came into Jerusalem, you didn't have a Jewish coin or a Tyrian coin, you had to exchange your money. Well, conveniently, you could go into the temple and there was a one-stop shop deal. You could get your animal pre-approved, pre-inspected, purchased right inside the gate of the temple. And then you could also exchange your money because there were money changers. They had their table set up and they had all of the coins for their uh, money out in their exchange out on the table. And then you could go up and you could barter and dicker and haggle with them and try and get them down and finally reach an exchange rate, which was exorbitant. Because in the end, the inspector and the animal salesman and the money changer knew that you needed them more than they needed you. And so they had you. And that's what was going on. And all of this was happening right underneath the nose of the high priest and his family. Because the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas and that whole family, they had administration over all of the temple precincts and nothing happened inside the walls of that temple that was not approved and sanctioned and condoned by them 100%. So Caiaphas and Annas and that whole high priestly family, they watched all of this commerce take place and they were getting money off of it because they would franchise out and they would franchise out the right to sell animals, the right to exchange money and the right to be an inspector. So even though those guys were making a killing, the people who were overseeing it, that is the priesthood, mostly Sadducees, were making a killing as well because they were franchising out the rights to do this inside the temple. Now, I think that if you were Annas or Caiaphas or if you walked up to one of them and asked them, why are you doing this? They would have told you, look, our motives are pure. Our motives are right. All we're trying to do is offer a service to worshipers. We don't want people coming from all over the known empire, arriving in Jerusalem without the ability to fulfill the demands of the law by offering a sacrifice and giving their temple tribute. So all we're here to do is provide a service which renders a convenience to them. And yeah, we make a little bit of money, but there's nothing wrong with making money. That's not condemned. All we really want to do is help them. We're doing it in your best interest, right? And our intentions are only the best for you and your family and your spiritual good. And you say, are you describing building a new facility or are you describing the, the offerings that are going on in Jerusalem? Describing the offerings going on in Jerusalem, just in case you're confused. It was a racket, friends. It was a racket entirely. And everybody from the high priest all the way down to the guy that inspected the animals, was involved in it, and they were making a killing off of it, right inside the temple courts. Now that is the scene that Jesus encountered when he showed up there. Not a new scene. He had probably seen that same thing going on every year that he came back to the Passover. And now he has started his public ministry. He has been baptized. He has been announced. The disciples are with him. 
He is now initiating his public ministry in front of everybody. He comes into the temple and his first public act in front of everybody, in front of the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, is to drive out all of this corruption that was going on right inside the temple gates itself. Now, what do we learn from this? Let me just draw, in closing, three sort of observations that you and I can pull out of this. First, there is a note of irony in this whole setting, in this whole scene. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says that covetousness is idolatry. The Jews prided themselves on their monotheistic, pure worship of the one and only true God. They didn't worship the gods of the heathens. They didn't worship all the polytheistic deities of the nations. They worshiped only the one true God, and they believed that God was one and uh, and only one, and that there was only one true God, and he existed in unity. And there was only one God to be worshipped. That's what they believed. They prided themselves on that. And they prided themselves on the purity of the worship of the one true God. And yet, if covetousness is idolatry, which it is, because it places, makes things and money and commerce and all of those other things idols in your life, if covetousness is an, is an idolatry, then you had idolatry going in within the very gates and walls of the temple itself. You could search Jerusalem high and low and you would be hard-pressed to find a higher concentration and a greater demonstration of covetousness than you found right inside the walls of the temple. And this going on right under the nose of the high priest in the name of pure worship of the one true God. That's ironic, is it not? Ironic. Second, I think we can learn and see that the best of intentions does not make up for or excuse unbiblical practices. We have a lot of things that go on inside churches in our nation today. And by church, I don't mean the building. The building is irrelevant as to where it happens. But when the people of God get together to observe the ordinances and the worship and the preaching of the word and the reading of the word and learning and fellowshipping, serving one another, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, I'm sure, with the best of intentions that is utterly unbiblical. The best of intentions. In a desire to reach this niche group and that niche group and to give the gospel to this person and tell this person about God and all of that stuff goes on. It, it, the best of intentions, I'm sure, but a lot of this stuff ends up dumbing down the gospel and dumbing down the preaching of the word and dumbing down the people of God all in an attempt to reach the lowest common denominator and the lowest possible median in order to reach people. However good the intentions may be, it doesn't excuse, it doesn't excuse things that are done which are unbiblical. Third thing that I think is significant, and this is a theological point, Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover in in obedience to the law. And one thing we see here, and we're going to see it throughout the Gospel of John, is Jesus' obedience and submission to the law. He was born to a woman under the law, and he kept the law. Do you know why he kept the law? And do you know why he lived his whole life under the law? He lived his whole life under the law to show that he kept the law and the standards of God perfectly. And this comes back to the heart, again, of the Gospel. Jesus kept the law perfectly for you who could not keep the law perfectly. So that His obedience is your obedience. You have never celebrated a Passover in in observance of the Old Testament law. You have never kept all of the Ten Commandments perfectly. Jesus did. He celebrated and fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law and obeyed all of them so that God could treat Him as if He was a lawbreaker in order that He could treat you as if you were a lawkeeper. So in the eyes of God, not only is our sin imputed, that is charged from our account to Christ's account, but His perfect obedience, His perfect righteousness is credited from His account to our account. Salvation and justification is a legal transaction in this sense. That my debt is imputed or credited to His account 
And His righteousness, His perfect obedience, and all of His law-keeping is credited and imputed to my account. So that in the eyes of God, Jim Osman, who has never fulfilled any of the righteous requirements of the law perfectly, can be seen as perfectly righteous because Jesus Christ, in obedience to the law and the perfect requirements of the law, kept the law on my behalf. Now, if you're a believer, there is nothing sweeter than that realization. I do not have to keep the law in order to get saved. I can't. I am unable to. But somebody else kept it on my behalf. And his obedience, his righteousness is mine by faith. If you're an unbeliever, that is the best news that you can possibly ever hear. If you have never repented of your sin and trusted Christ for salvation, the best news you can possibly hear is that you can be credited with the righteousness of Christ and be seen as righteous in God's sight, not because you've done anything worthy of it, not because you have earned it, not because you've done anything, certainly not because you're righteous, but because the righteous one did everything for you, fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law so that his righteousness could become your righteousness when you turn from your sin and believe on Christ for salvation. What a wonderful, wonderful part of the gospel that is. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you again for all that we have learned here from your word. There's so much here that is below the surface that as we dig and as we think and meditate upon these things, there are things which nourish our souls that are here. We thank you that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf kept the law perfectly, that he was righteous, completely righteous, and we thank you that we have that righteousness imputed to us. We thank you that that righteousness can never be improved upon. It can never be altered. It can never be given away. It can never be exchanged. But that we are righteous and seen as righteous forever. Lord, we commit ourselves to you and thank you that you are able to keep us and present us faultless before your throne with exceeding joy. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.